How can we make the world better? By making ourselves better. The Dr. Joe Show explores how you can make positive personal change by using his groundbreaking and highly effective I Am approach to understand who we are and why we do what we do. Your small changes can have big effects. Join us now for the Dr. Joe Show with Mark Stiles of Stiles Law, Thomas McCoy, and your host, Dr. Joe Schrand. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. Yeah. Nice. Nice. You know, I, I love the way you... you you really refine this. We're waiting until Sophie does that last bang go, and in it comes. I need my cue, you know? I couldn't. I never could quite figure out when to jump in, and when we started doing it remotely on Zoom, and I didn't have Ben to give me the, the go-ahead like we used to do in the studio, we, we muffed it a couple times, and then, uh, you know what? Go, 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 Mark. And there you go, and it yeah. rhymes with... Dr. Joe show. Yeah. It's just, it's just masterful. Masterful, Mark. It's wonderful. It's great. Tom, how have you been doing this week? I've been now. doing great this week, Dr. Joe. I've been yeah. uh, changing up my diet, getting ready for May and June and July and uh, etc. That swimsuit weather. There's this YouTuber, Greg Doucette, that I've decided is my favorite fitness YouTuber because he's funny and talks funny. Oh. And he made me realize that fruit is not bad for you. Uh, you know, how did he do that? Well, it sounds it sounds ridiculous, but so many of us, you know, I say us, people in general, have been led to believe fruit is bad because fructose. Oh, really? You think that that's what it was? Because of yeah. fructose, which has really very little to do with fruit? Yeah, so because it, it's not accounting for the fiber and the water and all that stuff. So, you know, eating fruit. I'm just trying to be healthier in general, a healthier young adult. But you know what that still means? What does that mean, Tom? You still get vaccinated. Absolutely. Good point. Can you talk more about that? Because I do want that message to get out to our youth to get vaccinated. So uh, there's a misconception based on, well, nothing really, that if you are young and you are healthy, you needn't worry about COVID at all which if you get, if you contract COVID, statistically, it's on your side that you yourself will live. Okay. Right. Yep. But here's the catch. It's not just about you. Mm. you. You are a laboratory. We're all laboratories. And every time we contract the virus, whether we even experience symptoms or not, it has the opportunity to mutate. That's very so true. Imagine the virus like a Pokemon. You get your Pokemon, and it's not that strong at first. You have to find usually other trainers. That's the best way to get experience for your Pokemon. It levels up. It learns new moves, deadlier moves. Hmm. And so what the vaccine does is it fights the trainers before you have the chance to. Hmm. It's removing the trainers from the game. I think this is a good good analogy uh, for, for youth so that they can understand it because many of them are into Pokemon. Oh, yeah. But it is true, you know, um, so just so people understand what a, what a virus is, a virus doesn't have its own body. A virus is basically DNA, actually not even DNA, RNA, uh, which lives inside a protein sheath. So it's like a little bit of genetic material 
in a shell and that shell is able to penetrate into the cell and take over the cell's chromosomal factory and basically shuts everything else down and says to the cell, you are just making more of me. But in that process, there are sometimes mistakes. That's what a mutation is. It's a change in part of the DNA and RNA code. And some of those mutations just are more successful than their predecessor. That's what evolution really is. Evolution is a series of mutations where the one mutation happens to be more successful in that particular environment than its predecessor. And that's what these variants are. So some of the variants that we're hearing about are just so much better at infecting you, but they may not be as lethal, which makes sense, right? Because why don't you want to be more lethal? Because then your host dies and you can't get into the next generation. And uh, I should also point out, it doesn't have to kill you to screw your life up. Yeah. Look up long COVID. That's right. This is an, another new thing, long COVID, where you have symptoms that just last and last and last as your immune response continues to try to fight it off. So I think it's great, Tom. I appreciate you, you sending that message out. You know, get your vaccinations. You can save a life, not just your own. It's and not virtue do. signaling. You don't have to take a selfie. Just get the shot. Yeah. Let's move from the me generation to the we generation. That's the idea. But. Yes, Mark. But if they choose not to, we don't judge them, correct? It's an I am. Okay. Just checking. You control no one. You influence everyone. But you get to choose what kind of influence you want to be. But it's always interesting. Why does somebody make the decision that they make? And that is part of what the I am is. We're looking at people without judgment, but just trying to understand it. So there's still a lot of fear. There's a lot of opposition. There's a lot of saying, you know, you can't tell me what to do. Always, it's always fascinating. You know how we have this law now that, especially around beach towns, there's signs on the restaurants and things that says, you know, when, we, when people could go into restaurants, you know, you, nobody with bare feet is allowed in. Now, you can't go into a place with bare feet. How much protest did that get compared to wear a mask or wear your seatbelt? You know? Well, the seatbelt, the automobile lobby held that up for over a decade. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, I remember that one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, Tom, you know, it's kind of, I loved your analogy about Pokemon. I was going to say, either you can play Pokemon or Mortal Kombat, you mm. get to choose. <laughs> Very nice. Over here. So who was that voice, Tom? I was going to say. Where was... did that voice come from? Could you please introduce that voice? Oh, I thought you were talking about Scorpion from Mortal Kombat. No. So, oh, okay. gonna... <laughs> so uh, our guest, Dr. Joe, tonight... She is the founder of Being Unnormal, a coaching and consulting group that assists people navigating the world of mental health. She also hosts Being Unnormal, the podcast, which explores various topics within the mental health community. Welcome to the Dr. Joe Show, Kimberly Berry. Welcome, Welcome Kimberly Berry. Berry. Nice to have you here. Get over here. Yeah, Finish are. him. No, um, no. Thank you so much for having me. Of course, I'm excited to be here and um, talk all things mental health and choice and 
video games. So I'm on board. <laughs> Let's do this. Yeah. So you remember the the uh, the lobbying against uh, seatbelts? Really? I do. I do in my town. I mean, I remember my mother was staunchly against seatbelts and just thought it was ridiculous and, you know, uh, waited till the very last minute to put a seatbelt on me. And, you know, I was a kid and I was like, you, what, you mean I can't climb all over the back seat now? And, you know, I mean, just things that were normal at the time where now I'm like, oh, my Lanta, if we're not, out, you know, backing out the driveway with my children, if they're not buckled, we're not going. Like that's, it's just a such an interesting cultural shift, but I remember the hubbub about that uh, when it went into effect. Hmm. So Mark, why why were they against it? Well, the automobile manufacturers were against it because of the cost associated with it, mm. right? Because they have, they have to install them where they didn't otherwise have to install them. Right? I, it was an interesting, really interesting conversation um, on another very popular podcast similar to the Dr. Joe show being a very popular podcast on all forms of uh, podcast consumption on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube. Uh, but another one very popular, Joe Rogan was interviewing a gentleman named Elon Musk and they talked about regulation. They were talking about AI, artificial intelligence and, and the time it takes to regulate something. It's already too late right now with AI. Mm -hmm they've already missed the boat on the ability to to regulate what's coming because you know it it takes a massive catastrophe where a family dies in an automobile accident for people to wake up and then go to the legislature and then lobby it and then push it and then make it law and then execute on the law it takes years and you know what he was talking about with artificial intelligence it's we don't have years, you know, we have seconds yep. before uh, this stuff is going to be wildly out of control and, and they'll be chasing uh, the regulation uh, from behind. But he, he was talking about specifically seatbelts and how long it took for people to realize, yes, if you wear a seatbelt, you will have a high probability of living in a car accident where if you don't have your seatbelt, you have a high probability of being injured badly, sometimes deadly. But the time that it took for them to actually institute it took over 10 years. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting. It's always interesting. Well, let's get back to, uh, to our guest, Kimberly Barry, and talk about mental health issues and stigma and being unnormal. How did you come up with the name being unnormal? Well, you know, um, it really came from my own personal experience. And, you know, when my daughter was in psychiatric crisis, you know, part of sitting down and crafting a treatment plan and, you know, kind of figuring out, you know, what, what that, was going to look like or how we were going to understand if we've hit you know some of the benchmarks in our treatment plan and it was this kind of idea of well i just want things to go back to normal what they were before the crisis and what i didn't understand at the time is that there was no more normal like life previously was things had forever changed and so 
um, when I was thinking about the name, it was really this, you know, acceptance and embracing of my unnormal and really leading into mental health not being a death sentence, um, but just a the next phase of our life and, you know, embracing that because really what is normal, right? Normal, this, this idea of normalcy, you know, the fallacy of our normalcy is that, you know, there's some kind of normal we're all supposed to be. And the more that I talk to people, the more I live my own life, the more conversations I have, you know, nobody has lived this normal life. So it's like chasing, it's like chasing perfection. It doesn't exist. And so it was really about fighting stigma and understanding that actually, you know, if we look at the statistics, right, more of us probably have a mental di health diagnosis than not. So that actually would be normal. So embrace your unnormal, embrace the differences, the uniquenesses, that create all of us and um you know and and fight any any notion of stigma judgment um all that good stuff so yeah that was the impetus of like really kind of getting my reclaiming my own empowerment back of saying well i'm gonna be unnormal mm -hmm. i think it's it's a great great approach um stigma has has just hurt so many people. And what's really interesting also is during COVID, we're moving away from the words mental illness to mental health. Uh, that really is a, is a shift. We weren't talking about mental health. Even two or three years ago, it was all mental illness. We were, we were struggling. The Dr. Joe show has been struggling against stigma for since we began. I mean, that's, that's part of our mission is to remind people we're all doing the best we can. Can, yeah. can we ask what happened? I mean, how did you get involved with, with your daughter? What what was the situation? Whatever you feel comfortable telling us. Yeah, absolutely. Well, to kind of circle back to what you were saying, um, at least for me, uh, there there I've always been aware of mental health and mental illness, and I think you know <clears throat> there there are actually divisions within the mental health community about the framing of mental health versus mental illness versus SMI. And, you know, that was kind of an interesting thing that I stepped in when I created Being Unnormal three years ago was, you know, how do people view even these different terminologies? And what I've come to find is that mental health tends to be kind of the more wellness-based, um, I would say, you know, um, treatable, you know, kind of the, I would say easily treatable when you look at how people look at mental health, depression, anxiety, it doesn't seem to have the seriousness that like schizophrenia, bipolar, you know, narcissism, all of that stuff on that spectrum. And so it kind of feels like a spectrum where you're kind of mental health, like, you know, you, you've only got five to 10 pounds to lose versus like SMI where you've got a hundred pounds plus, right? And, and everything in that spectrum, to me, mental health is a spectrum and every diagnosis has a spectrum, um, you know, and, and not that, you know, we have to pathologize everything, but I think, you know, the right, the right diagnosis can lead to the right treatment. And for families like me that have struggled to get the right diagnosis and the right treatment, um, those things tend to really matter. Um, as long as the parents and the the team isn't fra like framing this as something horrible. You know, if I was to tell a child they have diabetes, they would figure out how to manage that. If you tell a child they have bipolar, the family falls apart and feels like, you know, they've been handed this, 
this, you know, 50 pound weight that they have to slug around for the rest of their lives. And that's not necessarily true either. So, um, you know, throughout my whole lifetime, right, you know, I grew up in a, in a home where I had addicted parents. Um, you know, I got like, I aced my aces. Like I always joke around, you know, I'm, you know, I'm like, I got an A plus on my aces. And nice. like, just the whole, the whole line. And so, you know, mental health, um, and addiction have always been very topical in front of mind for me throughout my entire, you know, lifespan. And, um, but really being a normal, the impetus was going through the psychiatric crisis with my then 13 year old daughter and understanding, you know, she, she has bipolar disorder and she was diagnosed very young, um, because it was very apparent something was not, um, was was and i don't want to say was not right because she's wrong but there was something that wasn't right you know um as a parent uh, i was able to see that these behaviors were extreme and very erratic and there was something a little bit edgier to what was happening um, and we got the bipolar diagnosis at the age of seven after her being in therapy for two years so at the age of five she had written a suicide note and given it to me that she was going to jump off the top of her bunk bed to kill herself and um of course you know as a parent i'm gutted this is my child she's in kindergarten like what you know and you're just not prepared as a parent um, for these moments because nobody tells you that there are possibilities that these moments could happen and that goes to the stigma that we don't have open dialogue especially um, as parents and especially as mothers you know we, we we talk about what to expect when you're expecting and oh it's going to be great and you're going to raise a child and you're going to watch them flourish and you're going to teach them how to fish and swim and do all the stuff but what happens if you have a child who doesn't fit that that criteria um so you know i felt even in that moment very isolated and alone and i certainly wasn't going to talk to any of my friends about it and you know unfortunately at the same time i was losing my ex-husband to his mental illness um and so i was still married and because of the um crisis that he then inadvertently um you know, kind of fell, you know, it fell into, I guess, for lack of a better term, um, there wasn't a lot of support there or understanding. So I really did feel alone, but I had the wherewithal of somebody who had been in therapy for, you know, a good portion of my life, you know, a card carrying member, a diamond member of therapy. And so um, I knew that I needed to get help. And so I was able to get her into therapy and thank goodness for play therapists, first and foremost, for people that take the time to work with young children. There are not many of them and God bless the ones that are out there. So um, I was able to get her into therapy and we watched and monitored and I I logged and I, you know, everything, you know, how much sleep, what were they eating? You know, where were the mood shifts? So I gathered two years of data um, to, and, and finally after two years, we had enough information to make a diagnosis that was well vetted and we were able to medicate. And I'll never forget, um, you know, cause I had to teach my seven-year-old at that time how to swallow a pill. I mean, and it's these little things that, you know, parents don't talk about like, well, how do you teach your kid to swallow a pill? Especially at the age of seven. Um, but I, you know, she, she was given, you know, a, a medication and 
I got an email from her teacher uh, three days after she started her meds. And she goes, Kimberly, I, I, I don't know how to frame this email. She goes, but I just wanted to say, I don't know if something has changed uh, with your daughter, but she, it's almost like she's a different person. She's, she's really engaging and she's not as irritable. And it seems like she can do her schoolwork. And that was such validation that I had made that right choice because as a parent, you're struggling, you know, should I put, be putting my child on medication? And, you know, what does that mean for me as a parent? Um, all of that stuff. So this journey with my daughter um, was, you know, it, it was a, it's a very long journey. And um, she had hit another pretty solid depressive cycle when she was 10 and a half. And I, you know, but she's been in, I keep my kids in therapy and we went to her therapist and the therapist said, okay, well, let's go talk to the psych nurse, go talk to the psych nurse, psych nurse says, let's put her on an SSRI. And we did. And within two and a half weeks, she was completely suicidal. Um, and it was just crash, crash and burn. Um, and I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know that, you know, sometimes SSRI uh, medications can interact with people who have bipolar. It can cause high suicidality. All I knew is I had a 10-year-old child all of a sudden that was trying to kill herself. And I was bewildered. Um, I did my, then I jumped in and started doing my homework and learned and had those conversations and said, I think this is what was going on. Can we pull her off this medication? We did. And the suicidality, you know, subsided. And again, going through that by myself, I was so scared, not, you know, not only was I not going to let my friends know what, what was going on, but how much do I divulge to the school, you know? Will she be, you know, marked? You know, will she kind of have that scarlet letter? Um, you know, how how much do I divulge uh, to anybody that you know needed that information? It was really really tough. So I just kind of tucked it under my hat and, you know, put out the information because I didn't want her to be stigmatized. I didn't want her to be that kid. I didn't want her to be, you know, well we're not having play dates with her, you know, she's, there's something wrong with her. And so I just tucked it in and internalized it and kept trucking. And then um, she had a period, of, uh, a long period stretch of stability. And then at 13, um, we actually got influenza. It was the impetus. Um, I got influenza, if I will never forget, it was February 15, 2016. I got struck with the flu a true influenza and I was down and I'm asthmatic. I get pneumonia. That's why COVID for me was very serious. I took it very seriously. I knew it was a true threat to my life. And so what I got influenza and I was down and they actually wanted to hospitalize me at the time, but I'm a single mom with two kids. I wasn't going anywhere. I'm like, well, you know, we'll figure this out from my couch <laughs> and, um, and you know, lo and behold, we go. And of course my daughter got sick. And um, she got sick and she really struggled to breathe. But something happened and, you know, I still probably medically couldn't explain it, but it was like some, some, something just clicked. And all of a sudden she started having massive anxiety like she had never had and she couldn't breathe. Like her, her respiratory rate was so high they hospitalized her. And we ran the test, we look at her heart, everything, 
And, you know, they came back and they said, this is anxiety. And I'm thinking, you know, as an asthmatic, how is this anxiety? You know, even I was like, what? And, you know, I, I had to process that as a parent going, okay, my child can't breathe. She's, <laughs> I mean, literally all day and all night. And it was anxiety. And so that kicked off this I, 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 highway to hell, for lack of better term, where the anxiety morphed into suicidality. Um, her, she started rapid cycling. She would be crying and sobbing one minute, um, and then the next minute, punching holster walls and throwing things. And so we had all this. And I mean, it was just life altering, um, you know. And at the t you know at the time, I ended up getting laid off because I had to be there to watch her twenty four seven. She was under suicide watch. Um, we were trying to get her help. We were trying to figure out, okay, is this medication changes? What's going on? But I will never forget, as a parent, she woke me up at one o'clock in the morning, you know, so I'm, I'm finally sleeping because I was not sleeping because I was up with her. I finally <laughs> was getting a little bit of sleep and she woke me up and it was one in the morning and she said, mom, 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 I just want to die. Mom, 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 please, I just want to die. And I opened my eyes and she was just sobbing and just asking for me to just let her die. And as a parent, um, as you know, as a human, but as a parent and this and, and, and it being your child, there I don't think I will ever experience a deeper level of fear than I had at that moment. I was terrified. Terrified. Who do you call and talk to about this? Who's talking about this? Does this happen to other people? Is this only me? Did I do something wrong as a parent? Did I screw up my child? Everything flashes through your head. And that night, I didn't get a wink of sleep because I was so afraid if I went to sleep, she might find something to hurt herself with. And we wrote it out. And, you know, she, she struggled for six months just vacillating through aggression, um, Every, I mean, everything. And then the shame that came along with the realization of what she would be doing in these rage moments when she would calm down, it just was a living nightmare for her going through this, not being able to control it. And for a parent to watch your child feel that way. And also then though process being the recipient of that. And finally, finally, we were able to get her into, um, the right level of care and we finally dialed in her meds and once we dialed in her meds it changed her life it changed our lives my life her sister's life her life and she was able finally to stabilize um but it was a rocky road i had to fight the education systems because they wanted to boot her out of the district because she wasn't a butt in the seat it was expensive to educate her because she was not in school. And, you know, I had to fight with her pediatric care provider to, you know, make the referrals. I had to go through the various agencies and, you know, trying to get whatever level of care I could at the time. Um, it is a slow, slow process, but when you're in it, every minute feels like a year. And I think, maybe the pandemic can 
you know, with everybody kind of starting to go through something where you're in a situation where you're stuck in your house and you have no control over it, that was that, except there was also at the time a tornado in my house, damaging property and breaking, breaking my heart simultaneously. And, you know, and so coming out of that, I said, by God, you know, I, this can't just be me. I know there's got to be other families out there. I was trying to find communities. I was trying to find vetted information. And I got to a point, I'm like, if you shove, you know, if you tell me that, you know, it, this, it's just going to be a paleo diet that's going to fix this or, you know, essential oils is just going to fix this or, you know, whatever, just take this vitamin one more time. I'm going to scream. I want real information. I want to understand what's happening in my daughter's brain. I want to understand why she's, you know, like you said, doing what she's doing because I can't be an effective parent and I can't provide helpful interventions to her without that information. I want to be a part of the solution for my daughter. And so going through that and feeling so alone, I decided to say, you know what? If I get through this, I've got to do something about this. And that's really where being a normal, you know, arose from where we got through to the other side and I went, okay, I've got to get I've got to get going. We've got to not only break stigma, we've got to get great information out there and we've got to empower people to be able to have more agency over their care and not feel like they are screw ups, losers, rejects, you know, not feel like they have the bad kid or they are the bad kid, not feel like um, they're the worst parent in the world or the worst partner, wife, spouse, brother, sister, you know, for us as the caregivers and loved ones, we can do better when we know better. And for the people that are struggling with the diagnosis, for them to know, like, look, yes, your brain, there's, there's some stuff going on in your brain, but you also are incredibly empowered to manage your treatment and symptoms and take control of your life too. So that's pretty much that in a nutshell. <laughs> it's a powerful story. Mark, you have some, you were absolutely wrapped, I saw, and you too, Tom, riveted by the story. Well, you know, you, you, you can only picture yourself in her story, right? I mean, it's you you listen and you empathize, but you're you're right. There's got to be other families going through what you're going through. And I applaud you for following through with your Lord. If you get me through this, I will do this. And, you know, God bless you for doing that. And we, we uh, I support you a thousand percent. Oh, thank you. Right. When you're, when you're, um, when you're, you're angry enough, you get fired enough <laughs> to, to, to lean into your purpose. And that's, you know, pretty much where I, where I went. <laughs> Do you feel as though COVID is really opening up the doors for these conversations now? I'm hopeful. I, I, I think I think the short answer is yes. However, um, my concern is as things kind of quote unquote go back to normal, right? Um, people will forget 
right? That all of a sudden we're going to have massive amnesia about things because we just want to forget and run away. And I think it's going to be that same behavior. It's the same behavior that fuels stigma, the denial, the avoidance, um, you know, that will could or could potentially, right? Kill some of those conversations that are really, really needed. So I'm hoping not. I'm hoping that if we are maybe loud enough, um, they they have to hear us, right? And and I think if we can really reduce shame and open conversations from that non-judgmental place, you know, it it could then maybe be some of the impetuses for change that we need in the systems down to our communities. Um, you know, I when my daughter was in crisis, I had community members straight up to my face tell me that I was not doing the right thing. My friends didn't understand what I what I what was going on, and I would constantly hear things. Why isn't you know your daughter back in school? Why can't you just get her on the bus? You know, how, why haven't they been able to you know put her on the right medication? Why is treatment taking so long? And it, it's it's an it's an ignorance and not in a bad way. It's just from the lack of lived experience. You have no idea what that's like until you go through it, and you see how it's not easy just to get a therapist. You just can't roll in and you know in a month be fixed. That's not how this works. And I think now, due to at least especially in my area, the shortage of mental health uh, practitioners. Um, you know, my community for maybe the first time, their privilege is being tested and they're starting to understand that they had a lot of, you know, like assumptions that were inaccurate. And now they're being affected by it because they just can't get their kid into a therapist. There's waiting lists. And so, you know, it's easy to say, why can't you just when it doesn't apply to you? But now, since it is applying to them, I'm hoping that they, you know, that we can take a step back collectively and say, okay, you know, now, now do you understand? And if you understand, maybe we can work together on building some solutions. It's very easy to solve problems when they're only theoretical to you. Mm -hmm. Oh, I knew how to be the perfect parent when I was pregnant. I will tell you that. Oh yeah, flaxseed muffins for everybody. Yep, yeah, absolutely, right? But it, it's it's super true. It's super true. And so, you know, I I get asked a lot. I'm you know, I'm really plugged into my community here. And so I'm often getting messages, you know, Kimberly, where can I find a therapist? Kimberly, my kid is suicidal. Kimberly, my, you know, I'm well, like I'm seeing a huge tick uptick in eating disorders here locally. Um, actually throughout the US on the rise. And it didn't surprise me. I said, well, you know, eating disorders, lack of control. Oh, you know, the, you know, how can I control what's going on during a global pandemic? Well, I can control what goes in my mouth. Makes sense to me, you know? And, and that's the thing is, I think for me, a lot of this made sense because a lot of people didn't see what was already there on the brink before we went into the pandemic. These things aren't new, they were there. They've always been there. It just now is affecting you. It's at your door. So. Yeah, I think COVID has certainly exposed a lot of things that have been there all along. You know, one of the, one of the things you said it was about the anger. And you know, I frequently say there's nothing wrong with anger. It's what you do with it that matters. And some of the most important social changes have come because people were angry and said, this is enough. 
the stigma part. Um, why do you think there is stigma? And I've got my ideas, but I'm curious what yours are. Oh, I can throw out so many things, but as you know, as all, I think all roads lead back to fear, right? In some form or fashion, you know, but you know, you know, fear of judgment, um, fear of discrimination, fear of um, rejection, um, you know, fear of being othered, fear of being ousted from the tribe, fear of being, um, looked down upon or pitied right i mean there's so many different reasons um and i think that it's also the fear of um feeling like they may there may be a lack of control over the situation especially for parents i can't fix my kid um you know there's the the fear that in the shame right I, the shame of i must have parented wrong which is where you know i was kind of talking to you off off the air about you know what happened when my second you know my youngest daughter started having her mental health issues and crisis and it was like oh round two there's something wrong with me i'm a bad parent i made this happen i mean like I, i'm supposed to be responsible for this right i'm the parent so i think there's you know these shame and fear components that carry stigma and i think there's also then legacy um thoughts and um beliefs about mental health right if you look at the history of mental health you know and how it's been treated it was a religious issue um you know it was something that just needed an exorcism so i think that um there are legacy you know misconceptions about what mental health are that perpetuate stigma i think I mean, I, I hear what you're saying. That sounds like the person who's experiencing the imposition of those things. You know, like, am I this? Am I that? What about the idea that, and I agree with the fear part, that, that stigma is based on mistrust. That if I can't predict what you're going to do, I don't want you as part of my group. I just don't want you there because it's not safe for the rest of the group if we can't anticipate what you're going to do. And yeah. of course, that is part of what psychiatric conditions are about is sometimes people don't always respond in the way that we expect. So yes. I, what, would, what do you think about that? I mean, the, the, the story you gave about your the teacher calling and saying what's happened, she is now doing great the implication is before that she was not correct well you know i think that's trust is probably a better word i use control the lack of control but i think we were have you know we were on same two different sides of the same coin there of the predictability mm -hmm. of it all you know yeah. the lack of control of the predictability and the trusting of the behaviors that will come um absolutely and i think um you know it's 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 a, it's an interesting phenomenon um stigma um i think you know there's it's it's so much you know i i once heard somebody say you know it's so much easier to be lied to than to admit that you have been lied to and mm -hmm. That, you know, makes me think about a lot of the denial factors, especially because I, I do a lot of work with parents, um, a lot of the denial um, that parents 
don't want to, um, like you said, be mistrusted of their community or being ostracized from the tribe. And so there's the denial and, um, you know, one of the things that I've talked about is, you know, my daughter being used as the example in the community of what not to be. Oh, you don't want to be like her. So you need to go to school, you know? And, um, that parent actually came up and apologized to me a couple of weeks ago in the store. And I told mm -hmm. Dr. Joe about that, you know, because funny enough, right. Uh, her daughter struggled and had several overdose attempts, mm -hmm. you know, we get scared and mm -hmm. we resort back to the easiest thing that we, you know, we, we can do with the information that we have. Um, because we don't know what to do. And that's kind of the education piece, right? Of why education is a part of my mission statement, because if you don't know what to do, how do you know, you know, kind of how to react, right? Absolutely. And that's so right. That's you've right. got to arm people with information. And, and that's what, you know, the Dr. Joe show, you know, who we are and why we do what we do. It's, it's all about that knowledge. And the I am approach is a way to give everybody a roadmap. So we're all doing the best we can. We put these labels on it like bipolar or schizophrenia or happy or sad or successful or weak. We put a label on it, but that's still the best you can do at that moment. Rather than judge it, let's look again at why it's happening. Look again, again, look respect. And that's what it's about. Respect is what leads to value and value leads to trust. We talk about the mistrust. That goes both ways. Yeah. How many psychiatric patients come into my office trusting me right away? Zero. Of course, some of them do because they've heard of the reputation. But besides that, um, no, because trust has to go both ways. It really does. Um, I've worked with many, many psychiatric folks who have very little faith uh, in, in the system because they have been stigmatized and sometimes, frankly, mistreated. Absolutely. So, yes. And we, you know, we're managing that in our own way all along with the I am approach. So, we, Kimberly, we, we have a few minutes left. The, the I am, remember, there are four domains, home, social, biological, and I see how I see myself, how I think other people see me. The four domains interact which means a small change can have a big effect. You don't need to change everything. When they added that medicine for your daughter that first time, that small change in the biological domain had a big effect. When they added the SSRI, that small change had a big effect. So given what we're talking about, what small change can you recommend to our listeners to help them with the stigma? Ask yourself if Ask yourself, what emotion am I feeling with this information? Just take a moment to stop and say, what emotion is this? Why am I reacting to this information the way that I'm reacting? Just, just stop and pause. That's all. Stop and pause and ask yourself, why am I feeling this way? If you're angry, why are you feeling that way? If you're scared, why are you feeling that way? What's really going on? Just ask yourself why. Take the moment to give yourself the awareness. 
That's great. And from a biological domain, what you've done is you've shifted from the limbic system to your prefrontal cortex. You're thinking and reflecting, why am I feeling this? Wonderful advice. The second truth of the I am. Everyone's got an I am. They're interested in what you think or feel about them. So you control no one. You influence everyone. You get to choose the kind of influence you want to be. Kimberly Berry, what kind of influence do you want to be? I want to be a game changer. I want to be a stigma buster. I want to live a full life with a deep, rich legacy that has broken the paradigm and rebuilt the system. Well, we're all here to help you. We really are. Emily, thank you so much for being on the Dr. Joe show tonight. Truly appreciate it. And we are with you every step of the way to break that stigma. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you. All right, folks, we'll see you next week on the Dr. Joe show. A pleasure. Thank you so much. Have a great night. Thank you.